Welcome to another edition of the Work Life Hub podcast. To find out more and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.eu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. I'm joining Dr. Monique Valcourt um, in Nice, in France, via Skype. She is professor of management at the ADEC Business School and also an executive coach. Uh, Monique teaches MBA, executive MBA and undergrad courses on management, leadership, organizational behavior and performance management. And she coaches leaders who would like to engage and energize their employees. So it's a perfect fit with what we're doing at the Work Life Hub. And she's also doing a lot of research. She blogs for Harvard uh, Business Review, and she's going to publish uh, a new article, which is facilitating the crafting of sustainable careers in organizations. And we're going to talk mainly about this. So welcome, Monique. Thank you very much, Agnes. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get uh, going and delve into the uh, nuts and bolts of, of your article and your thesis around um, sustainable careers, would you mind explaining a little bit how you got into this topic? And I know you also research work-life conflict and work-life integration and, and what is the motivating factors behind all of this? Sure. Um, well, I often find that research is um, most inspired when it really connects to the researcher's own experience. And so I have been doing research on work-life integration and career self-management since I began my PhD program at Cornell University back in the late 1990s. Um, at that point in time, there was a research Research Institute on the university campus called the Cornell Careers Institute that had been constituted with a big multidisciplinary team of researchers specifically to look at these questions of how can you have a fulfilling successful career and also uh, you know be sharing your life with a partner who's also working and have time and energy for your shared life as a family and your personal life. Um, at the same time that I was beginning to study this, I also was a new PhD student uh, with two small children. I had uh, one who was three years old and one who was not quite one year old when <laughs> I began my PhD program. Um, and my husband was working full time. Uh, so it was also something that was very tangible for me um, as a parent being in that situation. And, you know, for the many years since, I've both uh, been been researching it, been trying to help other people through my teaching and coaching and blogging, understand how to find ways to create this, to serve, um, you know, the dual career agenda, to have two people who are happy in their work and to also have a thriving personal uh, and family life. So it's something I try and practice myself and something I try and share knowledge for other people, individuals and families, and also for companies, how they can support employees in achieving these goals. Thank you very much for sharing this this story. And I guess this is true somehow when you... Uh, when you have children and I have two myself, you kind of go over to the other side and you see all of the things <laughs> that are just not functioning with the system. And so this article, maybe if we just uh, cut straight to, to this article that you're going to publish soon, I know that you're a very prolific Twitterer and publisher and blogger, but this one uh, really um, raised something in me that I haven't um, really articulated before is that 
somehow in current management practices, there still seems to be these counterintuitive myths uh, on two levels. And, and one is that if we invest and foster the careers of our, em our employees, um, then they will just leave. So we rather just have some training, mm -hmm. but not invest too much in them. And the other one is, I think, maybe like a, a bit of an elephant in the room is that if we facilitate work-life integration and we allow for teleworking or flexible working hours, um, that, that maybe there is a fear that employees will not perform. And I found that these are two issues that you address very articulately in your article. Um, yeah, it is amazing how robust um, and inflexible professional norms around commitment to work are, as well as societal gender role norms. Um, so it really is very, very challenging for people to maintain two full-time careers um, and also to be giving the kind of time and energy to their family that they would like. And here in Europe, um, of course, there are some wonderful initiatives that a number of the different European Union states have um, have put into place and that are really well accepted, like having, uh, you know, in the Netherlands, there's really extensive part-time work. In Sweden, there's, uh, you know, extensive use of, of fathers' leave for new children, and they're, in fact, required to take some of that. So there are some really exciting um, different variations of support that have come up. In the U.S., there's really far less state support, um, and most of the support that people get has to come through employers. Um, and so there you really confront the question of do you, do you or do you not have an overall organizational culture that is supportive of really investing in individuals and helping them to achieve what's important to them in their own life as well as trying to achieve the goals of the business. Um, <clears throat> but access is very uneven uh, because it depends upon working for a place that has that culture. It often depends upon working for a manager who's willing to approve that type of thing. So this is getting to the second point, of course, that you were mentioning. Um, I haven't yet addressed the point about whether or not investing in employees' training pays off, um, but just you know, to stay currently with the issue of work life, um, I was just reading some really interesting research by an American uh, researcher named Erin Reed at Boston University, who's done uh, her dissertation research on a a big global uh, professional services firm, a strategy consulting firm, and she did some really in-depth interviews to understand how the employees who have very high demand jobs go about trying to achieve work-life balance. And what she found, um, and especially for the men, was that if they didn't want to derail their career and suffer some, um, you know, slowing down or loss of promotion and that sort of thing, that they really had to hide their involvement in family and the measures that they took to try to achieve work-life balance. So in many companies, um, they're really, even though there may be, um, you know, some public relations type of messaging around our, our, our company supports employees in achieving work-life balance, that there still is a very strong occupational and professional norm that expects people to commit themselves completely to work mm. and it can and it can make it very very challenging how so what happens is that um you know people tend to be when they find an employer that really is supportive 
and willing to accommodate them and where they really feel that I, I am respected and valued as a person and the things in my life that are important to me, you know, my management is willing to give me the space to honor those as well as to be a good employee, that that actually tends to increase people's commitment. You know, if you think about just how, um, uh, you know, how do you achieve stability? It's really by having a number of different bases under you. So if you think about the difference between sitting on a chair that has four legs, you know, that has your, your work mm-hmm. leg and your, your personal leg, maybe your health and your family, et cetera, that that's much more stable than if you're trying to sit on a chair that has only one leg underneath. Mm-hmm. If it's just the work leg, um, it's much easier to get burnt out. So there's actually some great research that shows how being invested in multiple life domains tends to produce synergy and energy that crosses back and forth among the domains. So there's a lot to be gained by supporting employees' ability to invest in um, in their personal lives as well. And of course, at the community level, everybody in society benefits when parents are really involved in and committed to their families and their communities as well as to their jobs. So it's interesting. There's a lot of conflicting rhetoric about that. Mm. And I also find that when... Uh, when it's time for hiring, I guess when companies and organizations receive all these CVs, you know, they always look mm-hmm. for what makes this candidate special or stand out. So they're looking because, you know, we have all the same degrees and probably all the same template of career template. But then does this person volunteer? Is this a person active in the music band or, you know, all these extra things that will make this person really interesting and fun to work with. And then once mm-hmm. we hire them, we try to mold them into this perfect worker, ideal worker template who just then forgets about all these outside of work activities and, and passions. Right. So That's very, very true. So you, you, the article, I, I find then uh, you really uh, bring up this idea of a sustainable career and, and address mm-hmm. the issue that everybody wants a secure, interesting, challenging, motivating place to work. And, and we see that uh, there's so much um, uh, job hopping and, and, and we feel pressure that we need to move on. And there's a lot of also a lot of leave intentions. I just saw today on Twitter these statistics where um, a, a German uh, study just found that every second German worker wants to leave their job. <laughs> and I think that's a very scary, very scary statistic. So uh, mm. would you take us through a little bit your, your thesis around this, uh, the sustainable career and how organizations can achieve that? So what you were referring to a couple of minutes ago, the notion of people really wanting um, challenge and wanting work that accommodates and responds to what it is that they're most uh, passionate about, what they value and what their strengths are, these are really core elements of motivation. And there's a lot of uh, research currently on the notion of using employee strengths, for example. It's showing that that's a really important element of engagement. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of companies really look at the notion that, okay, I go out, I recruit somebody, I pay them a good salary, I've now bought them, I've bought their um, their mm. commitment, their energy, their effort now, which will be directed towards these organizational goals. Um, but that's actually a really wasteful way to think about 
um, how you can motivate and engage employees and, and get the, the greatest performance. So what I really like about, or at least my conception of sustainable careers, is that um, when properly implemented, it really offers a great deal for both employees and for employers. You know, So there are a lot of employers who think, well, every time I give some accommodation in terms of work life or in terms of letting people do what it is they want, I'm losing something, you know, that there's a win-lose sort Mm -hmm. of uh, balance. And I really think that there's a lot of opportunity for um, both employee and employer to to benefit. So you mentioned the first thing is is having work that really um, aligns with what it is that you do best, what your interests are, your your strengths and your passions. And so when people are doing work that um, really fits them, that they're interested in, that they have the capacity to do, that they're interested in extending their skills at, and that affirms their own values and identity, that those are the conditions under which intrinsic motivation is highest. So people are performing at their peak, they're learning at their peak, they're committed. Uh, and, and those are employees who are really returning a huge amount of value for their employer. So it makes a great deal of sense for employers to use practices, for example, like job crafting, where they enable employees to make small changes um, to the jobs that they perform in order to do more of what they do best at and what they find um, most energizing. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when we think about, you know, what what causes you to, you know, think, oh, it's time for me to look for another employer, a lot of times it's that you're not finding that same challenge or that same interest in your work, uh, that a, a big part of your work is becoming very routine or, or uninteresting. So that is an area where employees can find um, much more sense of meaning and sense of energy in their work when they're able to really align it with what they care about most. And it makes a great deal of sense for employers to support that. But in order to support that, they really need to understand their employees on an individual basis. So I really argue for managers, anybody who supervises employees to be um really the connecting point between the organization and the individual and get to know what is it that this particular employee really cares about? What are their own goals for learning and for development and how can I support that? If not through um, enabling the employee to go and attend a training program, a lot of times there's a great deal that can be done just on the job. In fact, um, 70% of what we learn in companies, our professional development just happens on the job. So there's a tremendous opportunity Mm -hmm. to enhance employee learning through um, really being thoughtful about how you assign people to projects and facilitating relationships that people can learn through and that sort of thing. So that's a real cornerstone. And and you also um, link this with um, that all of this also requires self-awareness uh, and active career self-management. Uh, and I guess this links to the fact that if I don't know what motivates me or where my interest lies, then even if I have the most willing manager, it's going to be very difficult for us to find the fit where I would be excelling. Yeah, that's true. I really think that employees need to be, um, to think of themselves as the primary directors of their own careers uh, because there just are very few 
employers left who put together very extensive, comprehensive um, career pathways and training and development programs. And so, of course, as with any other set of choices in life, um, you're likely to enjoy your career more if you really have a sense of what is it that I'm most interested in and where do I want to go? I mean, you could think of it in the same way as if you think, you know, if you're deciding where you're going to spend your holiday next year, if you have no preference whatsoever and you don't know whether you like to lie on a beach or whether you'd rather go hiking or rather you want to be in a city and you just randomly pick or you call a travel agent and say, choose a holiday <laughs> for me, <laughs> you're probably not going to enjoy it as much as you would if you think, oh, what I really want to do is to go to a place where I can, you know, walk down small roads and, and eat this kind of food and so forth. So, I mean, it's it's much the same in terms of, um, of career. Now, of course, of course, there are a lot of things that companies can do to help support employees in identifying what it is that they're most interested in through um, making interest inventories available, through uh, a smart application of uh, you know career coaching and, and performance appraisal where um, managers help employees to look at what they've done and identify, you know, where was it that I was really performing at my peak? Where was it that I really felt um, most engaged? But I think it's a critical um, step, especially for young people coming out of university and launching their career, to, to try and develop a proactive approach um, to their careers, because that gives you much, much more control. Um, if you don't have that orientation, you're much more likely to find yourself sitting passively, feeling perhaps unsatisfied with, with your career and, and feeling frustrated that your HR director or your manager isn't coming to you and offering you um, a more interesting project to work on. Mm -hmm. So that really is that, that self-awareness is really a, a fundamental cornerstone. I mean, there's still such a big disconnect between, um, I mean, you mentioned young graduates, but I, I still find that there's such a big disconnect between what we think the world of work will look like and what I will actually be doing at the desk in my desired career or, or job, then what the, you will actually find. And then even if you're a very proactive person and you, you write about this in the paper, uh, it's still, I think for all of us, you know, you go left and right and backwards and forwards and try to figure out whether you're a creative person or an analytical person, a talking person or writing person. And and I, th I still find that in the beginning of the careers, it's still so wobbly for, for many of the young people. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And, um, you know, also the way some countries' educational systems are set up, you really need to make a choice at a very young age. You might be, you know, 14 yeah. years old and you're making a choice now that's going to determine... Um, what kind of career is going to be available to you. Um, and in a lot of countries, I find there's a perception that once you are in one particular occupational pathway, it's nearly impossible to change that. Um, and, and people also feel, I think, overwhelmed just by the amount of information that's out there. You know, there's such a incredibly broad variety of different types of work that you could do. Um, people yeah. feel overwhelmed about how do I go about finding uh, what's right for me. So part of really being proactive is learning how to build a network, learning how to find people um, who do work that looks interesting to you, developing the confidence to be able to 
contact people and ask them about their work. Uh, you know, and, and of course, social media are, are a fantastic tool for doing this type of thing. But it is very difficult, particularly for young people where they perhaps have never had work experience, so they don't yet know at all what is it that I might like to do, what's interesting to me. You know, perhaps they have a huge long list of things that are potentially interesting, or perhaps they're having a parent or a teacher who's saying, well, you really should pursue this, you know, you should really go into engineering, or you should really do this. Um, and, and they may not feel that's right for them, but they don't know what else. So a lot of people end up in their career paths, um, really just by chance, or by accident. And for mm -hmm. some people, it, it works out. Uh, and other people, I think, never find the work that they really love. So I'm a big advocate of just experimenting all the time. I think you know, I, I treat my whole life and my career as a grand experimental laboratory, and I'm constantly trying out new things and exploring and so forth and, you know, developing some hypothesis about, oh, you know, it might be interesting if I take on this particular writing assignment, and then, then I see how it goes, and I think afterwards, well, no, actually, um, you know, that, that didn't work that well for my own type of work process, and I, I think I'll avoid that in the future, or, you know, things like my... Uh, entree into blogging has turned out to be something that I really enjoy and that's become very, very meaningful me, meaningful for me and has also led mm. me to forge a lot of new professional relationships that bring me a lot of important information. Um, so I, I really recommend to everybody, whether they're just at the career launch stage or whether they're mid-career and they're maybe just looking to fine-tune um, their career to really have their eyes open and be reading and learning about what other people are doing and to be not to, to hesitate to reach out to somebody and make contact um, just for the purpose of learning about what they do. Yeah, I'm sure all of our listeners are also thinking that, you know, we're these uh, um, professional expert podcasters, but I have to say it's also something very new to us mm -hmm. and something that uh, we started uh, not even a year ago. And it's it totally um, echoes what you just said, because we, we got into podcasting and we n n nobody has ever turned us down. Mm -hmm. Everybody was very open and friendly to come on it. And we have learned so much. And I mean... One, one side of it is learning the technicalities of, of doing podcasts, but the other one was also to have these great conversations. So, I mean, thank you very much for sharing all these personal um, um, advice and suggestions, and because I think that that really is inspiring. And I mean, what you're just saying, what you just said is such an important point, Agnes, because so many areas of exploration are so much more open right now than they would have been, you know, even just 10 years ago. Say 10 years ago, you wanted yeah. to start like a television program or something. You couldn't have started a television program. You know, you would have had to be yeah. in the television industry. But now it really is easy to, um, you know, to explore in a new domain given the technological resources that are available. So that's great for you and you're creating value and you're, um, you know, helping people to have a learning opportunity. And that's exactly the kind of thing that makes that part of a sustainable career. And I also think that there's this big disconnect between the uh, putting sectors and jobs into uh, boxes. Mm -hmm. I think quite a few people now um, wouldn't even be able to 
to uh, describe what they're doing or, or give it just one label right. of project manager. I think now everybody is a project manager. If you're organizing your kid's birthday party, you're a project manager. Um, but that's why we have, I guess, all these new titles of chief happiness officer and instigator and futurist. All of these people trying to somehow describe what they're doing that doesn't fit in into one particular box. Right. right. It's It's true. And I mean, the thing is, uh, you know, also what we're learning is that there are people who are becoming very prominent in certain fields before they're actually experts in that field. So, um, you know, part of the, the meta competency along with self, I mean, for me, really the, the new career meta competencies are it's kind of self-awareness, an understanding of what you have to offer, um, what you do best at how you can create value combined with the ability to explain to people uh, in a way that's compelling, here's what I have to offer and to find yeah. people who are interested in that kind of offer. You know, that's really the, yes. that's the meta competency for navigating um, sustainable careers. It's not sitting back and looking through job listings um, and having a really good resume that that mode is uh you know sort of becoming increasingly less a fruitful way to to find employment and and i have to say that i'm a little bit obsessed with um celebrities and i was just looking at you know some of the figures of uh, gainings for kim kardashian oh uh, yeah if you if you know who that i is. i've heard of her <laughs> yes <laughs> and i was just thinking now you know should I encourage my kids to become expert selfie takers? Right. <laughs> and you know, it's just insane. Some of this disconnect between traditional career trajectories and ideas of making a meaningful living, and then it just gets tedious and boring. Versus some people who just all of a sudden explode yep. and become billionaires with these with these skills. Right. I mean, I find that fascinating. Well, the really interesting thing is um, oftentimes the people who become new billionaires, they're doing somebody something that nobody else has quite done before. So I don't know that the best way to encourage people is to say, oh, look and do exactly what this person has done. You know, I think that um, when you talk to entrepreneurs who have been fantastically successful, that a, a really common piece of advice is to find work that you're really passionate about. Um, and that ends up being a pathway to material success as well. Um, you know, I mean, I, just to say that alone is is simplistic. Of course, you also have to understand things about marketing and finding customers and so forth. Um, but I really think that there's a great deal to that notion of really understanding what you have to offer. And, what, and, and part of that is coming through what is it that you really enjoy. And this also leads into another element of this, um, this sustainable careers, which is the, the vital importance of learning. Um, you know, so mm -hmm. when we look at surveys of what is it that people are seeking in a job, having opportunity, ch having challenging work and opportunities for learning and develop tends to be, um, learning and development tends to be right at the top of the list of things that people are concerned about finding in work. And and mm -hmm. that is another key competency to have a sustainable career is you have to keep learning. Yes, you may go to a university, you may earn a certain degree, but that's, 
you know, that is far from the end or even the bulk of the learning that you're going to do. It's a, it's a, you know, credential, it's entree into a certain milieu. It's, um, you know, some types of knowledge that you're less likely to pick up on your own, but it's really crucial to be committed to, to constant learning. And, um, a lot of that, again, happens informally through the relationships you form, through mentors you may have, through uh, the network of connections that you make, as well as taking on new challenges or having opportunities on the job to extend your skills or to pick up a new skill area. So on the, um, you know, and that's not something that employees alone have to do on the management side. Uh, it's really critical for managers to be looking for ways to support employees in learning on an ongoing basis. You know, so that means having these regular career conversations, not just the once a year performance appraisal meeting when you're saying, oh, what are your learning objectives for the next year, but on a regular basis to be checking in with employees and saying, oh, you know, what it, what are you excited about right now? Uh, what would help you get better at this skill um, how can I support you in that? What is it you'd like to learn next? And to do things on a much more systematic and regular ongoing basis. Uh, before uh, we go to the very last question, the question before that I would like to ask you is, is where do you see what are some of the still existing barriers and obstacles for making this happen in organizations? Well, one of the things that you made reference to at the outset of our conversation that I haven't addressed yet is this fear that if I invest a lot in an employee in terms of, of developing them, are they then just going to turn around and leave mm -hmm. and take the knowledge with them to some other employer? Um, and so what that speaks to is the notion that training and development needs to be um, – part of an organizational system where people really feel valued. So people tend to commit um, to other people to a greater extent than, than to an organization in particular. Mm -hmm. And so that, that says something about the power of really building strong relationships at work. And, and yes, of course, it's always possible that an employee will find another job that is more appealing to them or that they need to move for some reason and they find a job in their new locale. Um, but when I go out and talk to HR directors and people who are very forward thinking on talent management, a lot of people are really thinking about cultivating um, a relationship with employees that may extend beyond the time when the employee is a regular full-time internal employee. You know, I was talking with someone um, a few months ago at a global bank who, um, you know, has many employees who have come back and are working, who were previously employees, went somewhere else and then came back, or someone, uh, you know, a person that has been identified through uh, some professional network that the company has been staying in contact with maybe for a few years and then that person ends up joining. Yeah. Or you may have employees who have spent a particular amount of time with a firm and then are interested in changing the nature of their employment relationship and doing work on um, more of a contract basis, for example. Mm -hmm. This is a, a big new thing in retirement rather than just having a full-time employee who, you know, on the last day of whatever month just disappears forever, um, finding a way to 
customize a person's um, employment arrangements at that stage of their life so that they can continue to contribute to the firm while also being able to do the the other things that are important to them in their life. Mm -hmm. So the more companies are willing to work with individuals to be flexible, to be willing to customize, um, the more opportunity they have to really reap the maximum amount of performance and commitment that they can from each individual rather than expecting each person to fit into some predetermined template of what an employee is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. Because people's, their demands, their responsibilities shift over the course of their lifespan and so forth. You know, so just because you have someone who, you know, maybe you've had somebody who started with a company after they finished their education and they were working, you know, very long hours for six years and then they get married, they have a child and now they really want to have reduced hours. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're always going to want reduced hours. That means that that's what's happening right now in their job. Yeah. So it's to the interest of the firm to say, let's continue to nurture this person um, and, you know, leave the door open to, to again modify the way that they're working in the future. Yeah. I mean, that's what we also find when working with companies is that they reluctantly but then they agree to reduce hours but then there's you don't have the conversation the other way around of coming back up again from part-time to full-time right it's then you kind of put on this kind of sidetrack of okay you're a part-timer i think there's still a lot of labeling and judgment about motivation and loyalty when yeah absolutely And I'll just, uh, there's one other thing I'd like to mention, and I'd love to actually hear your insights on this. What I find in talking with lots of different companies and employees is that the one area that work life is not really addressing in any systemic way is what is a reasonable workload? You know, it seems as though that's, that for me is like the elephant in the room that companies, you know, we can put in all kinds of policies and supports and you know you have some companies like Silicon Valley companies where the company is basically trying to make it possible for you to live your entire life at work you know know, that your your meals are provided and there's a concierge and you can have a massage and you can go to the gym here and you know they'll take away your your laundry and have it cleaned for you and everything but there are so many people who are just feeling this creep, creep, creep of work between the general load that you're um, assigned and then also the fact that everybody's got their smartphones and so forth and there's, for many people, no barriers. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm one of the many people who use my smartphone as my clock, so it's in my bedroom with me. Um, it, but really, I have not encountered any companies who are uh, at a senior leadership level saying, we really need to set some limits on how much we expect our employees to do. And we need to make it possible for employees and for managers to push back and say, you know what, this is just, um, this is just an unhealthy load. Yeah. And um, that's, you know, one of the areas in which these norms of total professional commitment really work against people being able to have healthy, integrated lives and careers that are really sustainable, or they could say, yeah, I could, I could continue working for this company for years. Um, and I know I'm not going to end up burning out because they're going to work with me to accommodate, um, you know, what else I have going on in my life. And there'll be times that I'm 
working harder, working longer. There'll be times that I'm a little bit less engaged. But there's always this sense, both on the management side and also on the employee side, that if I'm not working as hard as possible, there'll be somebody else who's working harder than me and I could be jeopardizing myself. We, th- we actually spoke about this with Lotta Bailey uh, uh, in our podcast when, when I, I don't mind saying Google, you know, yeah. that they have this panini in the fridge. So if you want to warm it up for yourself on, at midnight when you're still in the, in the office, you can do that. Right. But coming back to, to what you just said, um, I also think that there's, you mentioned a little bit, a lot of the peer pressure on this overwork mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be seen as the free rider or the lazy one. And, and I right. think that there is, because of the job security, I think, we know that, mm-hmm. I think in, in the back of our minds, we know that we don't have that much choice or what if I'm going to be out of a job? And so we, there is this power relationship between the employer and the employee that I don't think ever goes away. And, and that's that's what makes it, you you never truly feel comfortable to say, okay, guys, this is just too much work for me to handle, for anybody to handle. And then you have this peer pressure. Um, I know that this is what was written about the CEO of Yahoo, Marissa Meyer. Mm-hmm, right. You were saying that when she was working at Google, she just simply outworked her peers by doing, I think, uh-huh. four all-nighters in one row or something ridiculous like that. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yep. It's not healthy. <laughs> So um, just to come back to the last question, and this is a question we always ask um, the same question to our uh, podcast list, uh, podcast guests. If you could mm-hmm. give one advice to a CEO for him or her to make a big difference in the well-being of his or her employees, then what would that be? That is actually a difficult question because I hate to narrow it down to just one. Um you know, this is a really important question because um, what is running through my mind as I as I think about what would be the one piece of advice I want to give is that we know that CEOs tend to have atypical work and family structures, that they um, tend to be married to, particularly men tend to have uh, wives who stay at home, who take care of the domestic responsibilities and so forth. And also Mm -hmm. CEOs uh, are people who typically have not had much experience setting boundaries. Um, So they don't, many of them are not really in touch Uh with um, the experiences of most of their employees. And so we see the decisions that they make that may impact their employees to a greater extent, um, that they they themselves think, oh, this is perfectly reasonable because it's reasonable in their own calculation. Um, So I would say I think it's critically important for CEOs to get out of their corner offices and to um, really get out and to get to know some of their employees. And to try and understand um, what is it that would that would be mm. most helpful for uh, for my employees. Um, and so I would say, yeah, I, w- I would say get out and get to know on a, a real tangible basis what are the challenges that your employees face. Um, don't try and look at it through their perspective rather than through the perspective of your board or uh, your shareholders or what have you, don't assume that you understand what their experience is like and ask them, ask them directly. 
um, what can you know and this is a wonderful way to role model what I'm recommending mm. um, as a core competency for managers which is really the ability to understand each of their employees on a personal level and to support their their growth their development and their alignment um, you know so get out and get to know your employees and ask them what can I do to support you in um, you know, working in a way that's healthy, that's sustainable, um, and in a way that you're really going to feel good about your employment at this company. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Monique, for for this uh, piece of advice and and the entire podcast. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, would you like to just uh, maybe give away where uh, people can contact you? Sure. Yep. Uh, I am all over social media. Very, <laughs> e very, very easy to find. I have a very large Google footprint. So you can uh, follow me on Twitter. And my handle is Monique Valcour. Uh, I have a professional Facebook page that's Dr. Monique Valcour. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm also just in the process of setting up a professional website, which is not live yet, but it does have... Um, a domain name of moniquevalcourt.com. So look for that in uh, coming weeks. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you.